Produced at the studios of KBOO Radio in Portland, Oregon, this is Free Culture Radio. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Dr. Sheila Vicaria is the Deputy Director of the Department of Research and Academic Engagement at the Drug Policy Alliance. She was one of the smartest people I know. I've always been impressed with her work, and she's also a great communicator. So I was really excited to see that she has a new book coming out. The title is The Harm Reduction Gap, Helping Individuals Left Behind by Conventional Drug Prevention and Abstinence-Only Addiction Treatment. Published by Rutledge, The Harm Reduction Gap comes out in February. I had the pleasure of talking with Sheila about the harm reduction gap recently. Here's that interview. What was it like growing up in the just say no generation? I mean, it was a, it was a time of, of innocence for me um, and naivete that unfortunately was like clouded by fear. You know, I made the decision to open the book and throughout the book to tell to reveal more of myself than maybe is typical in otherwise, you know, academic uh, books. And part of the reason why I wanted to tell my story as a child of the Just Say No era, as someone who came up during uh, Reagan's presidency, during um, the the iconic um, This Is Your Brain on Drugs PSAs, and, and all of these messages, you know, it was really important for me to tell that story because we can't help but absorb the messages that we're surrounded by. And we have two choices when we come up with messages of fear, right? We can continue to live in fear or our life experiences can show us another way or another pathway and we can learn from them. And what I chose to do throughout this book is to talk about how being raised in that culture of fear did instill in me a fear and a mistrust of drugs and strangers and um, the perils of trick-or-treating. And at that time, we were warned about needles getting dropped in our um, trick-or-treat bags. These days, it's uh, getting sold fentanyl, candy-colored fentanyl. But um, that as a young person who grew up with these messages in the 80s, by the time I got through my own dare class and and got more educated about drugs and started seeing that my friends and people close to me were already starting to use and experiment and we were growing up with drugs around us that I quickly through those experiences started questioning and challenging some of the fear that I was educated to have or that I was taught to have because um, the people around me were not scary bad people the the choices and the decisions that they made um ranged but like it didn't change their character it didn't make them more dangerous to me if anything we were just kind of um experimenting we were coming up we were living life and because we'd been given no information and no tools on how to stay safe my friends were often just figuring it out for themselves um and you know so i use that example to kind of highlight how you know when you grow up with abstinence-based messaging, with fear-based messaging, um, and then there are no other alternatives provided to you in terms of now, well, if you do go on to use, this is how you stay safe. Or if you're worried about someone's use, this is how you act in an emergency situation. Um, 
If we don't get that kind of information, we have to figure it out for ourselves. And fortunately, at the time, we didn't have the drug supply that we have today. And me and my friends, we survived the foibles of our youth. Um, and many of us developed less problematic relationship with drugs. Many of us continue to use in various ways. Many of us have seen our relationships with drugs change over time. And sadly, the youth of today are dying of overdose that could be completely preventable because whereas in the past, my my friends and I were figuring things out with an unpredictable drug supply, it was nowhere near as potent as it is today. And young people are dying at astronomical rates, even though they're using drugs at much lower rates as they were when I was grow growing up. And so in kind of telling these stories of my own experience, juxtaposing it with you know what young people are going through today, I hope to engage the reader and my audience um, in thinking about how do we talk about drugs? Why do we talk about the way that they them the way that we do? Who's left behind when we only focus on certain kinds of messages? And what do we do when those messages have an expiration date? And how do we continue to prioritize safety um, in all of that? What is the harm reduction gap? It means that, you know, on the one hand of the, you know, if, if we were to think of like a continuum, a straight line going off forever in both directions, in the United States right now, when it comes to how we talk about drugs, how we built our systems of care around drugs, and how we provide people tools and resources to stay safe in a world with drugs, falls along two extreme ends of a continuum. On the one end is the abstinence-only messaging that we give often to young people, like the DARE messaging that I got coming up. You know, these are what drugs are. Don't do them, right? Don't do them at all. With the full knowledge, though, that most people will go on to use some sort of mood-altering substances when they do come of age, whether it's alcohol, tobacco, or nicotine products, which are legally available, but also pharmaceuticals that may be prescribed to them, and potentially, you know, drugs that are criminalized and illegal. And so on the one hand, we have this abstinence-based messaging for prevention, right? And many of us continue to go on to use drugs anyway. And we fall into this gap where there's nothing for us. There are no, like official resources for us to learn how to stay safe, get the tools and strategies we need so that we can make better decisions for ourselves, um, get support and help to achieve goals that may not uh, involve abstinence, and get the support, right? Because the only other way that you can get help in our current continuum of care is you develop a diagnosable substance use disorder or an addiction, and you go into our traditional treatment settings, um, from outpatient all the way to inpatient residential and, and detox, for instance, in which the um, implicit goal is, and explicit goal is to now achieve abstinence once again, because you develop such a problem with a drug that you should never use that one or any others ever again. And the reality is, is that most of us fall somewhere in the middle between these continuums, because in, in this continuum. And I'm calling that the harm reduction gap because it in that gap are social users, experimental users, recreational users, even problematic users of substances who obviously outgrew the abstinence message, may not walk into a treatment facility um, or have walked into a treatment facility and returned to use again. And we have this complete void in our continuum of care um, that I call the harm reduction gap that can be filled by 
providing reality-based education about drugs and safety, providing the tools and supplies and equipment people need to check their drugs to make sure that they're using drugs safely, um, providing them with the support, whether it's therapeutic support, mutual aid support, or what have you, to develop the skills to have a community of support around the goals that you want to achieve, and then having safer places to use those substances, um, whether overdose prevention centers or through other kinds of means to um, to do that. So that's why I pitched the book the way that I did, because our status quo is abstinence-only prevention on one side, abstinence-based treatment on the other, and the rest of us are just kind of left to fend for ourselves. And that's where harm reduction should fit in. This is my interview with Sheila Vicaria, PhD, MSW, Deputy Director of the Department of Research and Academic Engagement at the Drug Policy Alliance and author of The Harm Reduction Gap, Helping Individuals Left Behind by Conventional Drug Prevention and Abstinence-Only Addiction Treatment. We'll hear more in a moment. You're listening to Free Culture Radio. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Welcome back. Let's hear the rest of my conversation with Dr. Sheila Vicaria, author of The Harm Reduction Gap, Helping Individuals Left Behind by Conventional Drug Prevention and Abstinence-Only Addiction Treatment. Some would argue, and I've been hearing it here in Oregon, um, when we're in a version of it in, the, uh, in some of the discussion about, uh, about the Drug Addiction Treatment and Recovery Act, Measure 110, the, uh, the, which was passed overwhelmingly back in 2020. Um, there are some of the opponents, the same ones who were against it back before the thing was even thought of. But anyway, some of the opponents are, would, would prefer that this gap be filled before we deal with the um, before we the, we address the the prohibition part, could do you think would that be possible? Could we keep up the drug war and 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 also um, work on these other uh, work on taking care of these other issues or 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 is that or or what, what what would be the problem with that? What I would say is, you know, prior to the passage of Measure One Ten, Oregon ranked among the bottom of states in access to treatment along the continuum of care in counties and communities across the state, right? And they had 50 years to develop that treatment infrastructure, to invest money in ensuring that people had access to treatment, that people had access to the full array of supports that they could have, um, and that people could get the help that they needed, right? Oregonians could get the help that they needed. And Oregonians, after half a century of the drug war, had a drug treatment system that Prohibition built. They had a treatment system that Prohibition built, right? And it was poorly equipped to manage the needs of their communities. And in operating with that system, they were failing to meet the needs of their communities while continuing to arrest and incarcerate people for drug possession. So what happened with Measure 110 was we said we want to give you a treatment system and infrastructure built by decriminalization and show you what it can be like to build a system grounded in health and support and community and scientific evidence for making sure that people are getting access to treatments that work, that are proven, uh, that have backing, uh, domestic and international, in showing that they work. And so when people say that decriminalization um, happened too soon, 
I would say, why are we holding decriminal the infrastructure that decriminalization is building to a higher standard than the one that prohibition built over half a century? And in what ways, and, and how can we justify going backwards when the influx of money could have been decided by prohibitionists who somehow cared about people's health back then, but they chose not to do it. And now we're all of a sudden uh, expressing concerns that the system isn't isn't equipped to deal with people. But it's also grounded in this false premise that is perpetuated by so many people that somehow the criminal legal system is a valid pathway to treatment and help. Um, and I would say that that is patently false. The criminal legal system is characterized by some of the most abysmal access to treatment within the carceral system compared to our community-based settings. But also, um, even when people are living in the community and connected with the criminal system and mandated or coerced into treatment, uh, oftentimes the criminal legal system has say over what kind of treatment the person receives. One of the things that I write about in my book is that I got my start in my career at an abstinence-based treatment facility. I was an intake coordinator and an aftercare uh, counselor. I'm, I'm a social worker by training. Um, at an absence-based treatment facility in rural upstate New York, um, a county that's probably like much of the counties across the state of Oregon and many states across the nation, which are predominantly uh, rural and suburban outside of their metropolitan communities. And I worked at one of the only two treatment facilities in my county that served all the surrounding counties. And our facility largely at that time served about a third to, uh, or more of our clients were mandated to treatment, whether it was through the criminal legal system, so parole, probation, drug court, what have you, uh, through the family regulation system because they had um, alleged abuse or neglect um, and were mandated to treatment because uh, substances were somehow implicated in that, or they were mandated to treatment because their social ser services were dependent on completing treatment. And what I can tell you is that as a provider, um, the first day of treatment, my clients would have to sign a release form so that I could share all of my progress notes with their probation or parole officer or their case manager. Um, in a social service or family regulation system setting, um, including like their drug screen results. And that I should, you know, I should be able to communicate with these people freely. And it was a condition of getting admitted to treatment that when these people were referred to treatment, they had to check, uh, you know, these consent forms for me to speak to these folks. And I will tell you that it is really hard as a therapist to, and I just come out of social work school. I was like, steeped in all this idealism. I was like, I'm going to engage in client-centered care. I'm going to help people get to the root of their problems. You know, like social work is about self-determination and um, empowering the client to find solutions to their problems, to find their resiliency, to foster, you know, to use a strengths-based perspective. And I come into this treatment setting and already so much of our treatment was set up under these constraints where was my client really my client or was I also obligated to the referral source, the probation officer, the parole officer who's calling in and checking in, did so-and-so come to group this week? Um, you know, don't, don't forget to, you know, test them before they leave this week because I have my suspicions about what's going on. And I would have to, within the course of 
running these group sessions and doing individual sessions with my clients, try to build a trusting relationship with them when they knew very well that anything that was discussed in treatment could be discussed with their probation officer and that the drug test that I'd have to observe them in, I never knew that when I signed up to be a social worker that I would handle as much urine as I did when I worked at this rehab, um, that I would have to handle their urine in a cup, oftentimes follow them into the bathroom, and then to test it in real time with a dipstick test and to report to them the results and to send it off for lab confirmation if it came up positive. Then we'd walk into group and then I would somehow expect them to be able to talk openly about what was going on with themselves and what they were experiencing. And then with the full knowledge after group was over that I was going to have to run immediately to my phone to call their PO to let them know that their drug test came up positive. Um, and, you know, it created this environment of distrust because why would a client want to open up to me knowing that everything that was going to come up was going to be discussed with a probation officer, a parole officer, drug court representative, case manager, what have you. And it also created a distrust on my end because there was also a culture among my colleagues that like, also, Sheila, don't get, don't be too naive, you know, and then I'm putting air quotes, you can't see me, but like, addicts lie. It's the nature of the disease. And so like, this is why we have to drug test because they're not going to tell you the truth without really acknowledging that like, if and when people weren't completely honest or forthcoming immediately, it was often a self-protective move, not necessarily to manipulate, but it was because they knew the ramifications were so grand, right? And so many times my clients would test positive and I would call their PO and their PO would say, oh, you know, that that's evidence of illegal activity. That's that's enough grounds for a violation. We could send them back to jail or prison right now. And I would have to, to argue and say, you know, part of early days of trying to achieve abstinence or recovery or what have you is that sometimes people may return to use and it's a natural part. But this is also someone who's still coming into treatment every day who let me know, lets me know when they're running late. Like, I think this person needs care. Like, let's not lock them up and throw away the key just yet. And I, the fact that I have to have those conversations too, um, sometimes I, I got through them, but sometimes I didn't, right? Sometimes a client would get locked up again. How can we say that that should be the standard of care? If we truly believe that addiction, substance use disorder, what have you, is a health issue deserving and worthy and needing of treatment, how can we say that someone with a clinical background who's providing the care should have to defer to the criminal legal system to decide whether the person is changing fast enough or is motivated enough. Um, and also like, how can we truly affect change and help people feel safe in a therapeutic setting if they can never truly build a culture of trust with their provider to truly be open about what they might be struggling with, with the full knowledge that a PO could one day just say, yeah, I don't I don't think so. He's engaging in criminal activity by using drugs, even though we haven't achieved a lot of other stability in his life. And maybe it's the only coping strategy he has. I still think it's time to lock him up. He's just not changing fast enough. I can't keep monitoring this. To me, it's it's devastating, right? It's tragic. It was demoralizing. I couldn't keep doing it. I had to leave. And so when people tell me that coercive treatment mandates like this is the best pathway to treatment, it's a way to get these people the help that they need, I say the contamination of the therapeutic relationship and the therapeutic process by mandates 
renders it near impossible to truly engage in the meaningful kinds of conversations that you have to have with a provider to really discuss those reasons that you continue to use, the strategies that you're trying to engage in, the struggles that you continue to have, and that the threat of incarceration um, by someone who doesn't know or understand how change happens isn't going to solve our problems. It isn't really going to be the help that people need. Anyway, I could keep going, but well, <laughs> that's it, my long answer. Well, it, it brings up an interesting, it brings me to the next thing I was going to ask you about, which is harm reduction psychotherapy, because I mean, in, in many respects, the opposite of what you're talking about, what you just described, um, is and harm reduction, you know, the, is is this radical idea that 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 people are people that human beings should be treated with dignity and respect and 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 maybe it's a hint of compassion and and you know like human beings like a human like we would want like a like we would want to be treated there's a i think there's a saying about that somewhere hmm. yeah 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 I heard it's like a golden rule or something. Something like that. Um, I, 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 I didn't pay attention. Those, they, didn't, they didn't send me to those schools. Um, so um, tell me about harm reduction psychotherapy. Yeah. So, you know, after working at that facility, I couldn't keep doing it. Right. So I got a job at a needle exchange um, that still, you know, is affiliated with an organization that's operating across New York City today, Housing Works. Um, and I started working with people who were actively using drugs, who were coming to the needle exchange either because they were living with HIV or at risk of HIV um, and receiving broader case management and wraparound services from Housing Works. But then we're also um, popping into our harm reduction drop in center where the needle exchange was, where we also provided naloxone, uh, safer smoking equipment. We had support groups. We had showers. We had snacks. We had um acupuncture, all kinds of services. And I was hired as like the sole kind of mental health person. And so people could come in and use the drop-in center and also like go visit with their case manager to get supportive housing and all those kinds of things. And, um, and then like do a session with me. And I quickly realized that like all of the things that I'd just been indoctrinated with at the treatment facility did not resonate with like the clients that I was serving, right? Because they were literally picking up needles in the attached office to my office. So, um, you know, what does treatment look like when people might still be using drugs? And I got connected to the harm reduction psychotherapy gurus, um, as many of us know, um, early on. Um, this included Pat Denning, Andrew Tatarski, Jeannie Little. I met the late Alan Marlett um, and, you know, Fred Rogers and Deborah Rothschild, all of these amazing people. And I very quickly learned that harm reduction therapy was the kind of therapy that it infused the harm reduction approach with all of those values that I had been taught to have about treatment from social work school. And I was like, oh, this is actually helping people who use drugs in a way that aligns with the values I was raised with or trained with rather. Um, and yeah, harm reduction, you know, psychotherapy or harm reduction therapy, depending on how you want to call it, um, is the utilization of harm reduction principles, right? Ideas of like, there are many ways to help people stay safe and reduce the harms associated with their substance use. And that those values and principles and skills and strategies can be infused into good therapy with people. 
And, you know, good therapy being therapy that respects the autonomy of your client, respects their self-determination, um, sees their strengths and resilience, um, and treats them as autonomous beings who make choices. And with the harm reduction perspective, we can talk about their drug use and other high-risk behaviors that they may be engaging in, talk about what their goals are, what their priorities are, what worries them, what concerns them about their drug use. What about it do they not want to change? What functions does it still serve for them? But what are facets that concern them and worry them and things that maybe they would be interested in, in talking about being safer about, right? So this can include the gamut of like safer supplies. It can include tracking your frequency and your amounts, coming up with safer use plans, um, learning about the risks and drawbacks of mixing certain drugs or taking them together or in combination, thinking about where and who and when you use drugs and how to create safer environments and contexts in which you might be impaired or making different kinds of decisions. Um, you know, thinking about substitutions of, of substances, right? You know, for many people, for instance, marijuana is an exit drug or a substitution drug for other substances that they use that's lower risk, may have less withdrawal risks, what have you. Um, and that those kinds of conversations can be infused into good therapy. That's, that's what harm reduction psychotherapy is. We'll hear more in a moment. You're listening to Free Culture Radio. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Welcome back. Dr. Sheila Vicaria, the author of The Harm Reduction Gap, Helping Individuals Left Behind by Conventional Drug Prevention and Abstinence-Only Addiction Treatment. The book comes out in February. It is available wherever it will be available from Rutledge Press. It'll be available wherever people like to buy their books. And you should. It's an excellent, excellent book. A really, really good read. And um, Sheila, um, any closing thoughts for our listeners? No, thank you so much. I mean, I, I do hope that folks on the line will consider ordering a copy of the book. Um, we tried to make it as affordable as possible. And um, although it does have peer-reviewed citations and it is written by someone with a PhD, I hope you uh, pick it up because I also write it as a person, as a young person who came up in the era of D.A.R.E. and the 80s and Just Say No. I also talk about my own exposure to substances, my own experiences working in the treatment settings and in harm reduction settings, and my own journey. And I hope that you'll see yourself in my experiences and that it makes the journey accessible to you and that wherever you are in terms of your understanding of drugs, drugs pol drug policy, and harm reduction, that it helps advance your thinking and move you a little forward. Um, and yeah, I, I look forward to having more conversations like this with folks. Sheila, thank you so much. Thank you. That was my conversation with Sheila Vicaria, PhD, MSW, Deputy Director of the Department of Research and Academic Engagement at the Drug Policy Alliance, and author of a new book entitled The Harm Reduction Gap, Helping Individuals Left Behind by Conventional Drug Prevention and Abstinence-Only Addiction Treatment. And for now, that's it. You've been listening to Free Culture Radio. I've been your host, Doug McVeigh. I thank my guest, Dr. Sheila Vicaria. Many thanks to everyone out there fighting for civil rights, human rights, and social justice. And thanks especially to you, dear listener, for your support. You make it all worth it. And you make it all possible. 
Free Culture Radio is a volunteer production for community radio syndicated via the Pacifica Foundation Radio Network's audio port service. Please support your local community radio station. Become a member. Become a volunteer. Free Culture Radio is available as a podcast or direct download. Links are at the website kboo.fm slash freeculture. The music for Free Culture Radio is composed and performed by Tom Nickel in Four Dimensional Nightmare and is used with permission of the artist. We'll be back in a month to continue our examination of drugs, drug cultures, and the influence of drugs on society. Thanks again for listening. This is Doug McVeigh saying so long. So long! <laughs>